will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, this past week we were in Cincinnati for a funeral. My wife's, well, Chelsea, you know her. Chelsea's grandmother passed away, which is sad, but uh, at the same time she was a believer. And so while it was certainly sad, it was also kind of a, like a moment to rejoice in just the Lord's goodness in her life. And as we were going to a memorial service at my father-in-law's church, it's a small church in inner city Cincinnati. And so essentially everyone there is either on drugs or a recovering drug addict. And my father-in-law is the pastor there. He's also a detective in the Cincinnati Police Department. And so they're just really fun. It's a fun church. You have a police officer and then people who have had many encounters with people like him. And so it's always a great time. But as we were talking to these people during the memorial service and after one of the things that several of them were saying was just how my grandmother-in-law, Chelsea's grandma, had been so influential to them. And basically what they said is, well, there's one couple in particular, they have a lot of marital issues and, and they just are recovering addicts. And so they just have a, a really hard time in life. Like life is just really hard for them. They, they have messed up families outside of their nuclear family and things have just always been very difficult for them. And one of the things they said was, we, we don't know what we're gonna do without uh, Grandma Barb here because we really feel like her prayers have sustained us for the last five years. And they just kind of looked at her life and thought, man, this, this lady walks so closely with the Lord and her, her testimony to Jesus is so very clear in the way that she lives her life. Like, how are we going to continue without her? That's a pretty great testimony. The fact that this person's gone and their intimacy, their closeness with Jesus is so influential that it makes us closer with Jesus. That's really something to, to be proud of as a family member of someone who has passed away. Uh, it's, it's amazing, in fact. But the reality is, is the church there in Cincinnati, they, they saw, they saw like with their eyes, the effects of her relationship with Jesus they saw with their eyes the effects of her relationship with Jesus. As I was thinking about it, I realized her experience of God's grace, it, it transformed the way she lived and it transformed the way people saw her. People saw her differently. And after she died, she is no longer on this earth. The things they were talking about were things that will matter for eternity. And that's her relationship with the Lord. That's all anyone really was talking about. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11, and we're going to read this and you're going to be like, how are you going to teach this to us? I'll tell you. <laughs> the title in the ESV Bible says, Lawsuits Against Believers. How many of you are currently embroiled in legal battle? <laughs> right? <laughs> Five of us. <laughs> and only because we're lying, right? <laughs> none, none of us are suffering lawsuits, but I really do think all of God's word speaks to all of God's people. And so this actually is very applicable. So we'll, we'll get there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11. So Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous, that is out, people outside of the church, instead of the saints, that is people inside the church, verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Okay, pause right there. 
does the Bible ever just give you like little nuggets where you're like, wait, what? Do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, one of your duties when he returns is for you to judge the world with him? <laughs> I, the first thing I'm probably going to say, even in my like righteous, holy, perfect body is, like, are you sure you want me to do this? <laughs> okay, verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Paul's again, look at me. Paul, what do you mean judging angels? I don't know, but it sounds pretty intense. How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So here's the, the logic so far. You, as a follower of Jesus, in the end, will be co-judges with Jesus. The world will line up before Jesus Christ, and angels will line up before Jesus Christ, and you will, with him, judge them based on how they live their life. If that is true of you, even now, right, he's writing to the Corinthians, and we're talking about like 1950 years later from this moment. If he's talking to them, it's still true for us. So if you're to judge unbelievers, if you're to judge the world and angels, then why can't you judge matters in the church? That's, that's what's happening right now. Verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? All right, sorry, look again. I want to walk you through this because you're wondering, why do I even care? Do you remember one of the major things that Paul was tackling in chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians? It was their wisdom, right? He was telling them like, oh, you think you're so wise. Well, you need to become foolish in order to become wise because the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And now they're having these issues where they're going to courts outside of the church. And Paul's saying, wait, 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 wait. Aren't you wise? So now he's like using their logic against them and saying, wait, aren't you the smart people? You're the smart ones. And now they're like, daggone it, you're right. Verse 5, I say this to you in shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother that before and that before unbelievers. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Let that sink in. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right, so the question is this, can the world see Jesus in you? Can the world look at you and look at your life and see Jesus? That is a very fair question because I just came home from a funeral where it was very clear in a lady's life that Jesus was physically seen in the way she lived. Can the world, can unbelievers, can your family, can your church see Jesus in you? Can you see Jesus in you, in the way that you live your life? Two things. The first is this, and there are two questions. Why is Paul so upset about these lawsuits? Why does he care? 
one caveat is that secular courts are not really Paul's major issue here. So he's not saying, hey, I know that your brother was murdered the other day, um, and so why are you going to court over this? Why are you trying to exact justice for the death of your brother? That's not what's happening. What's happening is that the church in Corinth is having petty lawsuits against one another, and most people believe as they study the book of 1 Corinthians and things that were happening in the city of Corinth that they were fighting over land. They were having disputes over leases and, and whether or not someone owned this land or it had been sold or whether it was sold for a fair price, all these kind of silly-ish things. And the church was getting upset. There were divisions already, and now they're taking each other to, to court, and they're doing all of this outside of the church. So that's kind of the context that's happening. And so Paul is upset because he sees that their actions don't reflect the grace that they have received themselves. So their actions don't reflect the grace that they have themselves received. Paul's point here is that the Christian life is meant to be a picture of God's grace to us. That is, the way in which we live is like painting a picture to show someone. And the way in which we live can either validate or invalidate the faith that we claim. So let me explain. If I told you that I love Chelsea Kirkpatrick more than anything, which is true. Text her, tell her I said that. Say, oh my gosh, your husband is so sweet. He loves you so much. But if I told you I love Chelsea Kirkpatrick so much, but then you came to this place and I had like Chelsea over in the corner and I was like, you're such a bad wife. Your cooking is horrible, right? And I'm just like over here being super mean to my wife. And then I got up here and said, hey, I want you to know I love Chelsea Kirkpatrick. You're going to be like, our youth pastor is a crazy man. He does not love his wife. It is so obvious that you are a liar. Why would you even stand on the stage and try to tell us you love your wife when we just heard you yelling at her? Do you think we're stupid? This is kind of the point that Paul is making here. Your life, the way that you live it, especially to the onlooking world, is meant to be a picture of God's grace, of God's goodness, of God's kindness, of God's mercy to you. And your life can either validate, that is, I can live my life in a way that when I die, people will say, man, that dude loved the Lord. It's so clear by the way he lived his life and the things that he pursued in his life that his relationship with Jesus was real. It changed the way that he lived his whole life. Or I can die and they can say, man, I mean, he was a pastor, but like that dude was a bad dude. He got paid to be a pastor, but he wasn't a good guy. Like every now and again, he, ca he taught a decent sermon, but he was mean. In one instance, the way you live validates the thing you claim. And in the other it invalidates the thing you claim. And so the question is, is when people look at us, do they see Jesus? Do they see Jesus in our life? And so Paul's point here is he's, he's talking, and so I'm, I'm talking at this point about verses 1 through 8. So considering these lawsuits in particular and this idea of judging and all these different things, once again, his main point is that the world's wisdom and God's wisdom is, is not the same thing. Paul, Paul's point is the world will judge in a way that is opposite to the way that you will judge inside of the church. That is, God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's word is opposed to the world and the way that they think and the way that they believe, both ethically and morally. We know that's true because we live in a time where people are advocating for the right to, to, to murder babies, and we, we call it justice. Well, this is Paul's point here in Corinth. 
It's the same logic that has been happening for millennia. The world will call right and just something that the Bible calls sin, wrong, wickedness. And so Paul wants them to realize you shouldn't take these arguments outside of the church, number one, because it affects your witness, it affects your testimony to Jesus. But number two, they won't exact justice. It'll, it'll be false justice. It will be wrong. And in some cases, it will even be sin. And so don't take these things outside of the church. And the reason being is this, and this is so important. If you are a believer and you know that, or if you even think you're a believer, or if you're an unbeliever and you don't know it, or you definitely know you're an unbeliever, listen to this point. Why is that so important? Because the basis of judgment is on God's word alone. The basis of judgment is God's word alone. Why do we at this church in particular take so much care to preach through the Bible rightly? Because we believe that we will be judged on the basis of what God has asked of us. We, we don't believe that there's another standard whereby we will get to heaven and we'll say, yeah, you know, <sighs> Jesus, I just want to let you know, 3,000 times in my lifetime, I paid it forward in the McDonald's drive-thru. It's pretty impressive, huh? He's going to be like, wait, so did you like uh, take up your cross daily? Well, yeah, maybe, I don't know. But 3,000 times, Jesus, I paid it forward. One time, it was a family of 20, and they all got Big Macs. It cost me $350 at McDonald's. Oh, okay, did you love the Lord your God with all of your being and love others as you love yourself? The, the reality is, is that there's, there's no standard whereby we will stand before God and give an answer outside of His Word. The reason that we will judge with Jesus is, number one, because of His death for us. That is, he has restored our broken relationship with God because he has died for our sins. We have confessed our sins and placed our faith in him. And so we have a right relationship with God. That is number one. But number two, we will answer for everything that we do or do not do according to his word. And so the sole standard of judgment is the word of God. And so when you think about like, okay, well, I'm looking at my life. Do people see Jesus in me? What am I supposed to do? What shouldn't I do? The answer is God's word. It is, the, it is the thing that all humans will be accountable for in the end. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you will be accountable for having been given the word of God and either keeping it or rejecting it. And understand, keeping means keeping imperfectly. That is keeping as in keeping like fighting a battle, right? Walking through a swamp keeping. You know what it's like to walk through a swamp? It's like two steps forward, one step back every single time. And then you got to wiggle your boot out right? That's the Christian life. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about acceptance, keeping, and or rejecting. It's the sole standard. But then he goes on to say, as the outside world looks in on the church, but then even as we see one another, one of the things that he tells them, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense because we are a culture who think that we are owed everything, right? Not like, yeah, those unbelievers are my friends at school. No, you and me. All of us, we think we're owed something. It's, it's, it's a part of our sinful DNA to think that we're owed something. But what Paul tells them is they're thinking about all of these issues of going outside in the courts and what the world thinks and what is happening inside the church and all the fractures. Paul says, actually, you should allow the injustice to come upon you and you should bear that burden yourself. Let yourself be defrauded. Every time you get punched, you don't have to punch back. In fact, sometimes just turn the other cheek. Why? Well, again, it's because of our testimony. 
the way in which we live our life speaks to what has happened to us through Christ's sacrifice. When we turn the other cheek, what we're saying is we're not the ones who have to fight this fight. This is not our battle. And in fact, our battle has already been won on Calvary. All of this unrighteousness, all of this wickedness, all of this abuse, it has been taken care of on the cross of Jesus Christ. And one day, all of the wrong against me will be revealed and it will be judged perfectly. And so you can turn your other cheek. Now, it doesn't make those things easy or good at all. But what it does remind us is that when the world doesn't want to give us justice in those moments, or they want to give us false justice, we have the hope that someday we will receive full and righteous and good and perfect justice. That all wrongs against God's people will be made right. And so we don't have to live our lives getting what is owed to us. We don't have to constantly be thinking, what do I deserve? All right, so here's a question for you, though. As we, as we think about these, and then the next point is, what does this mean for us? But before we do that, I just want to ask you, and, and I want you to think about this, don't answer out loud, because it'd probably be embarrassing for all of us, mostly you, but maybe for me too. What does our youth group communicate to our unbelieving friends? So right now, thinking about this, you know, thinking about the moment you walked in, and, and then you came in, and you got the pizza, we went, and we did the game. When people come into this place, when, when our unbelieving friends join us here, and a lot of times, you know, we're not going to know who those people are, especially in youth group culture. We all want to kind of fit in to the place that we're going in, so we're really good at being chameleons. And so the next thing you know, we're a youth group, and everyone here is a Christian. <laughs> it is what's probably happening. If I said right now, and probably with adults too, hey, if you're a Christian, please don't do this. If you're a Christian, raise your hand. Everyone's like, boom, right? Nobody wants to be the person with their hand down. But there are unbelievers here. Without a doubt, there are unbelievers here. So when these people are amongst us, do, do they come here? And, and by the way that we've lived in just this short period of time, by the way we've interacted with these people, do, do they want to know more about Jesus because of the time they spent with us? Think about that. Like, especially if you're like, I'm a believer, I know it, I claim it, I've put my faith and my trust in Jesus, I have repented of my sin, Jesus is my Lord. If that's you, then has your actions this evening communicated to an unbeliever that you have a relationship with Jesus? Or are you just another body in this room? Or worse, the way that you've lived this two hours, hour and 45 minutes communicates that, yeah, you know what, Christians, they really are all just the same. They're stuck up, they're hypocrites, blank, 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 whatever the, the issues people have with us are. Think about it. In your life, do people see Jesus? Do you give them an opportunity to see Jesus? Right, that's the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. This, this idea of, did, did, you, did you pass by this man? Did you just walk by him? Why is that a parable? Because the way that believers live their lives, it's important. It communicates something. It speaks something of Jesus. You want to know the worst thing about all of the stigmas against Christians is? Is that they're not really against us at all. They're against Jesus because of us. Point two, what does this mean for us? So what, what does all this mean for us? Number one, it means if you're currently um, embroiled in some sort of lawsuit, stop it. <laughs> right? None of you are, but if you are, quit. It means this. Christians are called to live the life Christ has called them to live. That is revolutionary. 
It's so simple, isn't it? It's, it's harder to do, but it's so simple. Listen again. Believers are called to live the life Jesus has called us to live. We should say that every morning when we wake up. Oh, man, today I need, to, I need to live the life God has called me to live. So let's look at this, this logic. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you, right? Such were some of you as in what? Like sinners, like really bad, filthy sinners. You were given over to your sinful life. You lived for you. Verse 11, and such were some of you, right? That is, hey, believer, you were these people, which should cause us to be humble. Just point one, that's free. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Christians are called to live the life that Jesus has called us to. What's the logic? You were a sinner. You were actively rebelling against God. He plucked you from the gates of hell and your wickedness and your sin and in your filth, and he cleansed you. He, he washed you, and all of your filth ran down into the drain. He did that, and then he sanctified you. He took you out of the world, and he placed you in his church. And again, someday you're going to forget this, but that's why the church is so important. Because you haven't been just taken out of the world and then placed in some holy fairy tale. You've been taken out of the world and you have been placed inside of a local church to, to be sanctified people together. And then you were justified. What does that mean? What does justified mean? It, it, it means that you went before a judge and that you were wrong. You were guilty of murder and the judge simply looked at you and said, I will not hold this against you. Instead, I will take the punishment myself. You have been justified. Go and live your life. We've been washed, we've been sanctified, and we've been justified by the sacrifice of Jesus. God looks at Jesus and he says, you're guilty. And he looks at me and says, you are not. And he does all of this work simultaneously and applies it to us by his spirit. And he does that in the moment that you confess your sin and trust in Jesus. You understand, that's the beautiful thing. That the work that God does behind the scenes that we don't get to like physically see with our eyes happens in an instant when we trust in, the, in what Jesus has done. He does all of those things for us in a moment. And the Spirit applies this to your life. Now, what do we call that? We call it being born again. And what does it mean to be born again? It means you have a new life. It means that you're not the old you anymore. It means that the you that you once were has died. And you have been born to live your life as God has called you to. That's amazing. But then he goes on to give us kind of a little warning. And he says, the only people who will inherit the kingdom of God, right? Because we didn't just skip to, hey, guess what? You're all believers. That's not what happens. He, he reminds us as, as a warning, hey, the, the only people that will inherit the kingdom of God, the only people that will stand in judgment with Jesus against the world are God's children. And how do you know who God's children are? By the way they live their life. 
Again, your salvation is the work of Jesus. You will not work your way to heaven. But you prove who you are by the way that you live. It is true for every arena of our life. Are you a good student? Do you brag about being a good student? Well, then you better study and you better get good grades. Are you a really good athlete? Well, then you better practice hard. And when it comes game time, you better show up and play. Every arena in life, we believe that your walk has to match your talk. The same is true for the Christian life. And Paul wants us to know that. He wants us to realize that. You know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty hard truth. My mother is an unbeliever. My sister is an unbeliever. I'm not really sure if my father is a believer. And so when I'm preaching this to you, I'm preaching this to myself. This is not just like a thing where the youth pastor gets to get up and tell people that they're going to hell. <laughs> like I, I find no satisfaction in that whatsoever. I'm not trying to convince you into heaven, and I'm not trying to convict you into hell. And so the truth is that those who refuse to turn from their sin and to place their faith in Jesus, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will stand on the wrong side of judgment. Do you guys really believe this stuff? I mean, really? Do you really believe this? Because if you do, I, I want you to feel the gravity of what's at stake. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, I want you to feel the gravity of what's at stake. The way that you live your life, the way that I live my life, is a really good indicator as to how serious I actually take all of this stuff. That is, I'm not allowed to come into this place as a youth pastor and just preach all of these things and then go home and live like I want to. What I want you to know is that I believe this stuff so much that when I lose my temper with my children, my, my three-year-old, I apologize to him. It's how serious I, I think this is. To, to live the Christian life, to, to walk the way that you talk. The way we live is evidence. So if Paul were here, he'd tell the Christians in the room to pursue Jesus above all things. And I want you to understand that pursue is a verb, right? Pursue is a verb. It means to do something. Paul would say, pursue Jesus above all things. As imperfectly as it will be, as many failures as you will have, pursue Jesus more than anything in your life, dear believer. But what I would say to our unbelieving friends here today is that all of the people here who have placed their faith in Jesus, we are broken and we are sinful people. We are imperfect. We will do things wrong. We will not live the way that God calls us to live at every moment of our life. We will have to go to the Lord and we will have to confess our sin to Him. We will have to repent again and again and again. Not for our salvation, but because we realize we have failed to do what He has called us to do. We have fallen short of the life that he has given us to live. But unbeliever, I want you to know this. We have a Savior who helps us. We have a Savior who has died for us. We have a Savior who advocates for us. That means that he, when God looks at us and thinks, yeah, Jesus says, no, he's one of mine, <laughs> died for him. And so even in all of my imperfection, my, my only plea is still Jesus. And so if you are an unbeliever here today, I, I want to apologize first if the believers in the room have made you feel like you don't fit in here or that you're not welcome here because we love you. 
But I also want you to know that the reason you're here is not to be comfortable and have an amazing time. It's to know that you are a sinner and that God has provided a Savior for you. And if you will confess your sin to Him and place your faith in Him, He will save you. It is as simple as that. Thank you.